If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus. Second book in the Old Testament, Exodus. We're going to go to chapter 30. We had a couple of Sundays where we were dealing with the subject of resurrection, both of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that the believer experiences. And we are coming back to and finishing over the next couple of Sundays the idea of what it is for us to be believers and priests. If you had to think about what is the most underutilized part of being a Christian, what would you say that it is? Studying the Word, sacrifice, sharing the Word. Evangelism suffers, doesn't it? Okay? It's good that we can recognize that. Let's know where we need to pick up. By the way, now that you've said that, Right out there on the Welcome Center is a sign-up sheet for evangelism training on May 22nd. I've already gone through it. How often are you sharing the gospel? If it's not a lot, you might want to go through it again. Just an encouragement. What else? What's up? Living by the Spirit. Because we love doing things in the flesh, don't we? It's really hard to let go and let God. What else? Discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Which if we were discipling people, they'd know how to live in the Spirit, wouldn't they? Man, this is all coming together. You're still not giving me the answer that I want, though. (laughs) So we'll keep going. What else? Ah! Colleen, it is beautiful to have you with us. Prayer. Prayer. And I wonder if why we underestimate prayer is because we don't know where it came from, what it means, why it is, what God's intention of it is. There's one profound thing I think we need to grasp that I want to make clear up front. When we underestimate the power of prayer, we have automatically underestimated the power of God. Let me say it again. When we have underestimated the power of prayer, we have automatically underestimated the power of God. Because if we were convinced in our hearts and minds, if we had a full conviction that God could get involved and make a drastic difference in whatever situation we need to bring before Him, if we really believed that, then prayer would just be an automatic response that would almost seem crazy. Not to rely on. And yet prayer is usually the last thing. Or prayer is, well, I've tried all these things. Maybe I should pray. Or people come to me, Pastor, can you pray for me? You ought to see their faces when I say, can you pray for yourself? No, that's funny. You can laugh. It's okay. You can laugh in church. It's not going to hurt you. 
But why do I do that sometimes? To point out the fact that me praying for you is a good thing. We're going to talk about intercessory prayer next week. But God wants to hear from you. And God has actually gone to great lengths to make sure that nothing stands in your way to have an audience with Him. In fact, as believer priests, to not pray is to not submit an offering to God. It's to withhold offerings from God. Now, somebody name something that we should withhold from God. This will be a short conversation. Exactly. We shouldn't be withholding anything from God. But the idea of the things that trouble us the most or the idea that when we've been praying for a long time for a situation to come together and it finally does and you just can't help but to bubble over in worship. It forms itself in what? It's a prayer. What is prayer? Somebody define it for me simply. Talking to God. Do you think he likes that? He loves it. He loves it. How do we know that? Because he's a personal God. Because when he revealed himself by the name Yahweh, that doesn't just establish him as the self-existent God, but the personal God who desires to be intimately involved in every facet of life. And so he wants to set up a picture and paint very clearly by how people would worship him in the Old Testament of what prayer looks like. So in Exodus chapter 30, we're going to start by looking at verse 1. And just go with me. And at the end, I'm going to seek to tie all this together so that we can understand it clearly. It says, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. And you shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. Now, some of you immediately when you get into the Old Testament, you realize that this is NyQuil on paper. Oh my gosh, not this again. You get into Leviticus, you're completely lost, and you're wondering, did God even want this book in here, really? Did somebody stick this in here? But I wonder if sometimes our approach for those reasons is because we don't understand what God's trying to show us. God is all about wanting to not just demonstrate everything culminating in His Son, but He also wants to give us directives of a change of life. So let me say this, from what we study today, if you walk out of here the same person, you missed it. I think that's important. Because the Holy Spirit wants to use the Word of God to change His people. God loves using symbols. Not symbols, those are my symbols. I love those symbols. He loves using different symbols. Look at verse 1. You shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. Incense all throughout the Bible was used in a situation that would orchestrate prayer. And the reason is, is because when you put fire to it, smoke goes up. 
So it's the idea of bringing prayers before God. And it's the idea of something that is satisfying. Now, I've got three different kinds of incense that I keep in my, in my desk drawer in my office. And after I've been here for about three weeks, everybody know Sheila? Raise your hand if you know Sheila. Okay, so we're talking fun all the way around, right? And she came down one day, she's cleaning. And I had a little bit of patchouli, and so I had lit it, and the incense was going through. She stuck her head in my door, and she goes, Is that pot? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I've been here three weeks. She thinks the new pastor's high. This is great. This is going real well. I said, no, Sheila, it's actually the stuff that potheads burn to cover up the fact that they've been smoking pot. That's probably why you're associated with them. So, huh? Because, here's the thing, man. I'll tell you this. I never inhaled. (laughs) Some of you are old enough to remember that. No, honestly, I'll be, man. I'll be honest in my life, okay? I tried pot one time because I was trying to impress a girl. No. No. But, but she was 27 and I was 17. That's why I was trying to impress her. <laughs> the older ladies, right? But anyway, no. It, it, was, it, was, it was an awesome ticket to Loserville is what it was. So never rode that train again. But no, the idea of smoke going up in a worship capacity is the idea of offering up prayers to God. Now the reason was is because when the high priest was coming in, he had to stop there before he could go any further for the Day of Atonement. Remember, high priest, one time, can enter in there. He's got certain things that God wants him to accomplish, and he has to be correct with God before he walks into the presence of God. And part of that were prayers on behalf of the people. Now we're going to talk about that next week because there's a whole different imagery that comes with that. But if we read further here, the burning of incense, you shall make it of acacia wood. If you want to know, acacia wood sometimes symbolizes the idea of flesh or humanity is what it is. It says its length shall be a cubit. All right, everybody put up your hands like this. Everybody put it up. Don't smack the person next to you if you're left-handed. There we go. From your elbow to your middle finger is 18 inches. That's a cubit. Okay? So you know that it's this way, wide, that way, long, and then if you can do... It's that tall. So it's three feet tall, and then it's 18 by 18 in a square, okay? Now watch what happens here. It says, it'll be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns, that's weird, shall be one piece with it, but it's not. Horns are a symbol of strength throughout Scripture, especially when you're reading Revelation. If you don't understand that and you get into Revelation, you will get lost pretty quickly. They usually symbolize strength, or dominance in some way, and they're often associated in national capacities with kingdoms, okay? Now, why did it have to be of one piece? Wouldn't it have been easier to fashion whatever needed to happen and stick it on? Possibly, but there's something greater that's going on here. How do we know that? Look at verse 3. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Pure gold is a symbol of deity. And what this altar actually does, in fact, all of the articles in the tabernacle are reflective of who Jesus is. 
So the acacia wood being his humanity, the gold being overlaid with his deity. Why? Because he's 100% man and he's 100% God. And the reason why you have strength as part of the original artifact is because it didn't have to be added later. It was something that is who Jesus Christ is. Does that make sense? If you ever want a good book on the articles of the tabernacle and how they matter for the New Testament Christian, Theodore Epp has written a book called something like Portraits of Christ in the Tabernacle. I recommend you get it. So I'm moving on here. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around and its horns. And you shall make, now watch this, a gold molding all around for it. Now this was something special that was put around. The horns would be on the four corners, but this was something special that was made and then added on later. Now, if you've got something, in fact, PJ, if you wouldn't mind, I've got a picture on there of this altar of incense. Could you bring that up real quick so we could see that? Everybody see that? And notice that on the corners here, you've got horns that are made, but these side parts here, this is actually probably a little bit nicer than what of what it looked like. It would have been a little bit more ornate around in between each one of those corners it was going on. But the reason is, is because this gold ornamentation represents a crown. And it's not until later that Jesus Christ is crowned. He is God and he is king. And he is our priest. He was our priest at the moment of resurrection. Forever in the order of Melchizedek. Never did not be a priest. But in a situation of needing to be added on later, after the horns, he always had strength. But one day, he will assume the throne and he will put on the crown that Satan has stolen from Adam and Eve when they forfeited it through sin. So that's why this is a separate deal. Moving forward here, verse 4. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls and on the opposite sides. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Now watch this. This is the location you want to pay very close attention. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat, which was representative of the throne of God, and the mercy seat is the lid to the Ark of Testimony. So the cherubs were there as one piece. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in with the branch of hyssop blood from a pure spotless lamb, one year old, that had been sacrificed, and he would sprinkle it in the middle of those two cherubs in order to atone for the sins of the people all over that mercy seat. So you're to set this up in front of the veil, and on the other side of it is the ark right in front of the mercy seat. Veil's in between. Everybody got that? Everybody understand that? Okay. And notice it says here, that is over the ark of the testimony, very important, where I will meet with you. This is where God is going to be in firsthand presence with the priest. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamp. So it starts in the morning. And you've got a 12-hour burn of incense that takes place when Aaron, when Aaron trims the lamps. At twilight, he shall burn incense. And there shall be perpetual, continual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. It's kind of like when we get the idea as pray without ceasing. The incense is to continually burn. When he has to put out these lamps on the menorah and he has to go through and he has to trim them and then get them started up again, 
incense is still going about and it's filling the holy place. And he's making sure every 12 hours that it's replenished and it's burning. Why? Because our prayers are to continually be offered up to God all the time. He goes on here, verse 9, you shall not, here's the prohibitions, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering. And you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. In other words, this is not an altar for offering. The prayers going up are the offering. The incense is to be sweet smelling to the Lord. Verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of the atonement once a year throughout the generations. It is most holy to Yahweh. In other words, it is set apart for his purposes and for his reasons. So what you would have is you would have a priest who outside of the tent of meeting would take the brazen altar and he would sacrifice this animal and then he would take this blood from that and he would come into the holy place and in doing so he would come to the horns of this altar of incense, golden altar of incense, and he would apply some of the blood to the four corners of that before he could go through the veil and enter into the presence of God where God's glory was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Everybody got that? Yes? Don't sound convinced. All right. Look over at verse 34. Then Yahweh said to Moses, take for yourself spices. And notice it's not just any spices. Stacte. I don't even know what in the world how to say that. But what it is, it's from a myrrh bush and it's a gum resin that you can only find over in that area of the world. Also, onicha. Don't even know what that is, but it's the inside of a mollusk shell. You actually had to take the shell of a mollusk and scrape out the inside of it. And it was very potent and very, very fragrant. And those particular mollusks were only found in the Red Sea. So it kind of lets you know what they had to go through to gather all these things, specifically as God had said. Notice also galbanum. This right here is a brown resin powder that comes from the... Ferula flower. Anybody got ferula flowers? Anybody want to go over to Edgewater and ask Carol for a ferula flower? See what she does. She might. She probably knows what it is. I don't know. But this right here was not just strong scented, but it also served as a preservative that when mixed with the others would sustain the smell for longer. This would talk about a 12-hour burn before it had to be replenished. God is also supplying the things that need to take place in order for this to go forward. And with pure frankincense... We know that, right? Terry, you just brought it up in a newsletter. We all know what frankincense is, yes? It's from that guy that was created with the little knobs right here, right? We know that? No? Young frankincense? Never mind. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> it's from the Boswella trees, and it's actually from part of North Africa, and it has a balsam aroma. God is very particular about what he wants and how it's to be mixed. It's very specific. It's very exact. Why? Because no one knows how to properly worship God more than God. And we have to be taught how to do that. Now, watch how this moves forward. They will be equal parts of each. Verse 35, with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, why? More preservatives, pure, not having anything else but what was prescribed in the mixture, and holy, meaning that it's what? Set apart. It's got a particular purpose, and that's the only thing that you use this for. You don't use it for anything else. Moving on here. He says, verse 36, You shall beat some of it very fine, 
and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. There it is again. It shall be most holy to you. That's interesting. Before at the end of verse 10, it was most holy to the Lord, the altar. Now this incense is to be most holy to the priest that needs to offer it. Do you think he better do a good job? Oh, yeah. yeah, God's pretty exact on this. So now verse 37, the incense which you shall make. You shall not make it in the same proportions for yourself. It shall be holy to you for Yahweh. Whoever shall make any like it to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people. In other words, if you weren't going to use it to burn incense on the altar of incense, you were going to die. No other choice. And you say, man, God's pretty harsh. I think God's pretty clear. God's very exact. Now, let's talk about why this is supposed to make sense for us. Turn over to verse 40. Or sorry, chapter 40. Forgive me. Look at chapter 40. That's only one part of the articles of the tabernacle. Now he's going to talk about what it is to set all these up. And I'll show you why this is important as a picture. Chapter 40, verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there. Notice, God goes first. Number one, the ark of the testimony is to be planted first. Where you're going to set it, everything else is built up around God's presence, where God's presence will dwell. He says, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand. So we have the table of showbread, we have the menorah that comes in, and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. So what did they do? They would come up, they would set the ark of the covenant here, they would back up however many paces they needed to, and they would set up the menorah and the showbread, and then after that they would put the golden altar of incense in proximity to the ark of the covenant, and then they would strike a veil in between them. Everybody got that? It's very precise and exact of how you're supposed to set this up. It's the same way every time. It's not cutting corners. It's not, well, I think we ought to do it this way. That doesn't float with God. Okay? It says here, uh, let's see, verse 5. Is that all we had on that? Verse 5? Yes, verse 5. It's all we had on that. Now, PJ, if you wouldn't mind, let's show some pictures. Everybody look at these illustrations in order to help you. This is from Rose's Guide to the Tabernacle or to the Temple. <clears throat> Out here you have the bronze or the brazen altar. And this is where burnt offerings would happen from sacrifices and those things. After that happened, the priest would have to go over and wash. He's pretty bloody. And so he's got to go over and he's got to wash in this laver full of water. And then he's able to enter into what is called the holy place. Now, everybody see the walls of the holy place and everybody see the menorah lit up there? Notice that they're covered in gold. Why is that? Because you can have small lights in a room full of gold and it will reflect off of itself and you got all the light in the world that you need. In fact, there's a group from Florida, I don't even remember who they are, uh, but they had set up on the outskirts of the town we used to live on and, and set up a, a replica of the tabernacle and it's done in tarps. It's not, you know, sheepskins aren't around everywhere, that kind of thing. But you go in and you get a feel of what it looked like and when it's lit up, it really lights up that room. You have the table of showbread there that has 12 pieces on it of unleavened bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And everybody see where the golden altar is. And everybody see that the, that the handles in order to transport it are right there. And then you've got it right in front of the veil. If you were to go on the other side of the veil, 
you would be right into the presence of God, and you would see the Ark of Testimony, and all of us are thinking about Indiana Jones right now, yes? There you go. Notice where it's placed. Pay attention to the location. Why is this important? Because in order for anybody to be acceptable, they have to come under terms of sacrifice, yes? The bronze altar. When that happens, they're cleansed, yes? The laver of water. Then they can come in, and they can partake of the bread of life, and they now have fellowship with the light of the world. They've been brought into it. So relationship is established here, fellowship is cultivated here, and you can also enter access by prayer. And this is what brings you into the presence of God in fellowship. Now does everybody notice that it's set up also in a cross formation? That's the way that God did it. In fact, PJ, if you wouldn't mind, go to the next one. That's freaked out whatever that is. But this is an artist's rendering of what cherubim look like. And if it's anything like that, I'm scared to death. Okay? <laughs> Period. If you look at this scene, and they would actually be facing the west. See up there, atonement, return westward? The idea? This would sit in the very middle of the children of Israel whenever they would stop for encampment. And when they would stop for encampment, they would have to set up shop right here. The tabernacle goes up first. The ark is the first thing placed. Everything else is developed around it. But then what they would do is they would take the three smallest tribes and they would put them westward. And they would take the six medium-sized tribes and they would divide them up into two sets and they would set them out north and southward. And then when they would take the three biggest tribes and they would put them down here going eastward. And so not only would the articles within the tabernacle set up a cross formation coming up crossbar and then ending at the head with the presence of God, but they would also format their entire encampment as a cross in the middle of the desert. Now they didn't have drones and helicopters back there, but can you imagine being up a couple thousand feet and seeing something like that going on with a couple of million people? God has always been painting the way to the cross. Always. Now let's have some fun and turn to Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 4 and 5, John finds himself in the throne room of God. He begins to see many different visions from this point forward. But right now he's just completely enthralled with being in the presence of God's actual throne room, where he sits, where he rules where his presence is abundant. When you think about the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it what? Is in heaven. Which means that God's will is not being done on earth, but it's always perfectly being done in heaven. What happens is, is a scroll shows up. And whatever John knows, he knows. Because he's grieved by it. It's got seven seals along it, and he knows there's no one around here that has the qualifications worthy to open this great scroll. Then an angel shows up, like they always do. They usually start with do not fear, and everybody's like throwing up on themselves, right? <laughs> Freaked out. He says, wait a second, we've got somebody. 
take a look here, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns. What do horns represent? Strength, power. And also seven eyes. In fact, the number of seven is God's number of completion. Seven eyes, omnipresence. It says here, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand, the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus comes forward. He takes the scroll from God. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, those are cherubim, and the, or forgive me, I think those are seraphim actually, forgive me, high rankings of angels, and 24 elders. And you can debate with me on this if you want to, but I'll go ahead and let you know. I'm understanding this as celestial beings being angels of a high rank of some sort. They fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of what? Incense. And look what it says. Which are the prayers of the saints. Everybody see that? Pause for a second. Have you prayed since you walked in the door? Have you prayed this morning before you walked in the door? Do you recognize that all those go to one place? See, the tabernacle, we see an illustration of that. God's just trying in very crude, earthly ways to demonstrate what the structure of worship looks like in heaven in actuality. And there is an altar of incense that sits before his throne of which prayers are offered up. And the fuel, the incense, the fire and incense from that is now placed inside of these golden bowls. And these are your prayers. Are you a believer in Christ? You're a saint. You don't have to go through a thousand years of being dead in some kind of weird ordination process. That doesn't make you a saint. A saint means a set-apart one. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint for God. I don't think of myself as a saint. It's okay. Jesus made you a saint. There's saints and there ain't, right? Anybody know that one? Never mind, forget it. It's the prayers of the saints. Notice verse 9. And they sing a new song. Saying, and notice what it elicits, worship when he takes his scroll. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Moving over, I have to change the page. Verse 10, you have made them. Notice it doesn't say us. This is why it's not people. You have made them, those that you purchased with your blood, to be a kingdom, kings, yes, Yes? You're supposed to say yes. Some of you seem lost, so I will repeat the answer before you're supposed to say it. Kings, yes? Yes, you have to have kings to have a kingdom. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So what you find is the redemption by Christ's blood of every single person who believes, actually jettisons you into a position that is well beyond just relief of guilt and shame, that is well beyond the gift of eternal life that you now have. It puts you in a position as a king and a priest before God. This is a privilege and responsibility that you and I could never attain any other way. But because Jesus is that, he shares with his people that position to bring them into a glorious privilege. 
Now, if we have that, and we could not have that any other way apart from Jesus, we better be diligent in our responsibilities before him. I would hope that we're praying at least every 12 hours, putting new incense on the altar. I would hope that our lives are are so dependent on prayer that we would be fearful of striking out in any way on our own in independence of God. Those are the instances where you find God is not blessing. But those instances where we commit ourselves in prayer to him, those are the instances where he is blessing. Now another fun passage, turn over to Revelation 8. We'll just start in verse 1 for the sake of it. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, same scroll, last seal. Okay, so you know what's transpired in between. The other six were broken. He decides he's going to break the last one. He says here, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Anybody ever wish somebody would break a seventh seal in your home sometimes? Okay, just wondering. Sometimes I tell Nathaniel, hey, buddy, we're going to play a game. It's called Don't Say Anything. And he tries to win, and I love it. It's great. (laughs) Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel, a different angel from those seven, came and he stood at the altar. Pause. Anybody want to guess what altar that is? It's the altar of incense in heaven that's before the throne of God. It says here he was holding a golden censer. Now, a golden censer would also be what's known as a fire pan. I like that. Anybody starts a metal band, name it fire pan. That's pretty cool. But if you ever think about you go and stay at a hotel and you got to go down and get your own ice, you got to get out the shovel, fire pan. Think of it that way. That's an ice pan. But you know what I mean. Fire pan. Now, here's the thing. How did that happen? Because once a sacrifice is done at the bronze altar, that's where the fire is. And so you take a portion of that fire, and after you've washed, you bring it into the holy place, And this is where you put it upon the altar and you mix the incense with it in order to bring the prayers up to God. And that is where the priest would intercede for himself and for the children of Israel. But notice, he's got this fire pan, this golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to, add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's him. And then I'm going to read verse 5 just because it's really cool. Then the angel took the censer and filled it. He took, so he takes his fire pan, he fills it with fire from that altar. He fills it with the fire which contains the prayers of the saints. Okay? And it says here, and he threw it to the earth. Now I don't imagine what that looks like, and Hollywood's not going to get on it anytime soon. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So this is during the tribulation period. Notice that the prayers of the saints play a portion in being an atomic bomb on the earth. See, your prayers matter. They're powerful. They're amazing. And it's not because you're good at praying. It's because the heart that comes in reliance to God is everything that God is looking for in being worshipped in spirit and truth. Some of the greatest prayers that I've ever heard are people who don't know how to pray well. In fact, those are the ones I'd rather listen to. Me, I'm trying to make sure that my systematic theology is correct before I get everything down. 
God, you are, uh, let's see, holy and omniscient and uh, aseity. That's a big word. I love using that word. I love that word. You know, he knows who he is. What am I doing? Wasting time. Wasting time. Now, I want to show you this. You don't have to turn there. But if incense represents prayers, and coming in and continually praying, and if God was so exact about the contents of those things, contents mattered, didn't it? Better be done in equal portions, a certain way. You got to go here, you got to go here, you got to go here, you mix it all together. It's got to be just right for Him. If you wouldn't mind, PJ, pull up Leviticus. You can just look at the screen. Now, Nadab and Abihu, you know these guys? If you're having kids, write these names down. Now, Nadab and Abihu, can you imagine that? Nadab and Abihu, stop there! The sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them from the sacrifice altar, the brazen altar, okay? So sacrifice has been made, the fire's going, they decided to do this. Look what it says. Putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And we know that because we just read it in Exodus 30. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Is that a loving God? Is that a holy God? See, here's my concern. What are they doing? when they place incense on this fire pan. What takes place there with the priest? Are they offering up prayers? What kind of prayers? We can't, we can't afford to become flippant people in addressing God. You mean God would do this today? Possibly. But God's also got a lot more creative ways of disciplining His children, spanking their behinds, and setting them on a right path. Don't be surprised he would do that. Remember, he's a loving father as well as a holy God. So he wants his children to do right, and he determines what is right. But if we think we're going to come into the presence of God, just, God, please bless the Packers this year. I don't know why they put it. He could have read it in. You know? Feel my pain. But if those are the things that are consuming our prayers, I would be fearful. Because God gives us specific things that we ought to pray about. In fact, let me show you what he's done to make sure that that's possible. I mean, the great thing about God is, is God is always trying to set his kids up for success. God is always trying to say, here's every tool that you possibly need to get the job done. Now utilize it. Take advantage. I mean, stop for a second. Indwelling Holy Spirit? Really? Here? Do you know what's in here, God? Yes. Because he demonstrates his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he already knew how bad I was and am, and yet he still is gracious and loving despite that. That's God. And I can't understand grace. It just is what he does. He is grace. Now watch this, and you do need to turn here. Hebrews 9. Turn back to the left just a little bit. Hebrews 9. And this is interesting because this passage has been a little bit 
of a conundrum for commentators. I don't want to pretend like I've got it figured out or know better than them. But I think there's something interesting that you're going to notice that you go, aha, and the light bulb will come on. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Excuse me. It says, now even the first covenant, now that is the law of Moses, okay? The covenant is done with the law that was given. It's a conditional covenant. If you will obey me, then I will uh, protect you and provide for you. And it's a covenant that God made with the people of Israel, okay? It says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, which is the... Tabernacle. Okay, everybody say it with me. Tabernacle. There we go. Participation. Yay. Stay awake. Verse 2. 4. Here's the explanation. There was a... See, he gave you the answer. You guys just didn't read far enough. All right. There's a tabernacle prepared. The outer place, that's the holy place when you walk in the first veil there, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Verse 3, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Stop. Anybody notice something? Let me read it again. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand. Everybody remember we saw that? Reflecting off the walls? Yeah? And then there's the table that's got the bread on it. Everybody remember that? And that's the crossbars of of how the cross is set up. That's the crossbar there, right? Everybody remember that? And notice what it says after that. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, stop. That's the holy of holies, right? What's missing? The altar of incense. Everybody see it's gone? Everybody says, what happened? Right? Thank you. (laughs) Verse 3. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense. Does everybody see what he just told you? Let's finish this. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. So here's what you have. You'd have the brazen altar here. You'd have the fire. You wash at the labor. You come into this first part of the tabernacle. You've got the bread. You've got the light. But here in Hebrews 9, there is no altar of incense. Where is it at? It's in the Holy of Holies. Now why is that? Who moved that? Who had the right to move that? Isn't God really particular about these things? Or is it because when Jesus Christ died, he ripped this veil in his flesh and he gave full access by the blood and he ushered in the opportunity for prayer to be closer to his presence so we would be right before his throne so that every time we come to him and we say, Father, we come into your presence. It's talking about the fact that we have approached this golden altar of incense and we are before the Most High Yahweh, Creator, Elohim of all time. See, Jesus Christ makes the difference in how you pray because he gives you greater access to God. So when we pray things in Jesus' name, every time you think, ask these things in Jesus' name, I want you to picture the fact that this has been ripped out. 
and your prayer life has actually been maneuvered into a situation where you're closer to the throne. Those prayers end up in a golden bowl before him anyway, a sweet-smelling incense to him. But I tell you what this does when we start thinking biblically about prayer. It makes that knee a lot easier to hit the floor. It makes that face a lot easier to put on the ground. It makes that fidgeting and that wondering mind a lot more calm. Because I recognize that I can't just fold my hands and all of a sudden go into a prayer and all of a sudden I'm praying all this stuff. I recognize that I'm at an altar. And every time I put a prayer on it, it's coming up before the throne of God. And it better smell good. It better be according to how he has prescribed it. Otherwise, I'm going to be found guilty of offering strange fire, even though the Lord Jesus has picked me up and carried me into a closer proximity. How can I trample on grace like that? It's easy. We do it all the time, don't we? But this is the point of the scriptures. To recorrect our minds, to make us realize we have better have some reverence when we fold those hands, when we hold those hands, when we offer up a prayer, when we're not so quick to speak, recognize where you are. You are not sitting in a building called Grace Bible Church in the middle of Portage, Wisconsin. In that moment, you are there immediately. Now, my favorite subject about prayer is do we pray biblically? Do we offer up biblical prayers? Now, I know if you've gone here for a while, you've heard me harp on this. Guess what? Part nine. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. Let's take one example. 1 Thessalonians 3. Turn back just a little bit. Make sure you don't get in 2 Thessalonians 3. That'll get you all messed up. 1 Thessalonians 3. Is that right? No. What do I have back there, PJ? 311. Man, my bad. Sorry. Yes, I apologize. Maybe I had it written down wrong. Everybody look at chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Stop. Does everybody recognize that this is a prayer? He's calling on God. That's witness number one. He's calling on Jesus. That's witness number two. And notice he doesn't say, y'all need to learn to love better. You all need to look down in your heart. You need to get right with God and really think about whether or not you love people. Notice he doesn't do that. Notice it's not guilt. He is calling on people to access the grace available to them. Why? Because if I'm going to love you, it better be the Lord making that happen in me for you. 
There's the prayer. Look at it again. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Verse 13, here's the reason. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Everybody see verse 13? That's a judgment seat of Christ verse. That's what's known as the Bema. That's when believers are Christ in Christ will be evaluated before him on how they stewarded themselves as believers and either be given a favorable judgment where reward and regal responsibility will be heaped upon them or you will lose the rewards that you thought you had though you will still be saved yet as through fire. This is how serious this is. If I don't take the time for just this one prayer to stop and to say, God, if I am going to love my brothers and sisters, I need you to get that love in me. I need you to be making the difference in me. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from me. I don't mean to disappoint you, but I can't love you. And I'm not disappointed because you can't love me. Because it's not really in our capacity to do so. It's not. We were robbed of that at the fall. But what's amazing is this tells me if I just take the time to ask God, what's He going to do? Notice it's not about me doing better. It's about me relying more. It's about me depending more. It's about me giving up the fight more and saying, God, if there's a difference that's going to be made, love is going to come from you because that's the only kind of love that can love. And it just blows my mind. For one another, believers, and for all people, unbelievers. Do you find yourself naturally pulled to love unbelievers? We find ourselves to pity unbelievers because they don't have hope like we do. Death is not a factor for us anymore. We don't care. It's just graduation into a greater existence. But for people who don't have that, that's pity. That's not love. The idea that we need to love them, we need to love them like Christ loved them. So why not call on God and let it be Christ's love that loves them through us? Everybody see that? But you have to ask. You have to come to Him and ask. Why is it important? Verse 13. So that he, there it is, the Lord again, may establish your hearts without blame, that you would be faultless when you come before him in the judgment. In holiness, set apartness, before God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. He tells you when it's going to happen. He tells you the time. At the time of the rapture, when the Lord Jesus comes with his saints, we're going to be taken up and immediately ushered into this situation where we are going to be judged. And the judgment seat of Christ is not a fearful thing if we've sought to be dependent on Him for all things. I have no reason to fear. Now, the difficulty here is convincing you that it needs to be applied. I need convincing that I need to stop trusting in myself of how I'm going to love people. I'm going to love Jay. And instead, asking... He's not here. He's not here, and I love that. (laughs) But um, see what an evil, twisted jerk I am? I need the love of Jesus coursing through my veins. Good grief. 
Thank you. So here's what I want us to do for five minutes. Take a moment. Get with somebody. And let's spend time in prayer. Let's take a moment and think about what it is exactly we're offering. Let's think about where we are when we approach His throne. Let's think about the seriousness of how God wanted to orchestrate all of these things to show us the reverence and the attitude that needs to be brought. And then, offer up a prayer saying, Lord, I need you to be the difference in me to increase and abound in love for my brothers and sisters and for love for those who aren't my brothers and sisters. That's the prayer. It's a simple prayer. We're just praying Scripture. Father God, we come into your presence as your children, as those who have been bought with blood and completely forgiven. No need for guilt, no need for shame. You invite us into your throne room to seek grace and to find mercy. You've given us 66 books to unfold your character. Father, we need to be mindful of these things. We need the Holy Spirit to bring them to our attention. Satan has sought to dull us in our thinking, in our insight, by the way he's crafted this world and manipulated and twisted this world. Lord, we need to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. And we do not have the capacity in ourselves to do that. Lord, I pray that if we have any pride that has made us think that that can originate in us, that we would forsake that now and that we would empty ourselves out, that we would be filled by you so that we could love unconditionally as you love, you loving through us. Lord, how often we need this prayer. How we need to be known, especially in this time in history, by love. Father, may we be changed people because of the seriousness of prayer, because of the importance of the picture that you've painted for us. Because of the Lord Jesus, it cost him his life to make it intimate, to bring us from the holy place into the holy of holies, to be right in front of your throne. That's incredible. We love you. We thank you, God, for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name, amen.